0: Good afternoon. My name is uh, Bill Nyman. I uh, teach here at the college, and I'm delighted to see so many faces here and uh, welcome you to Prairie after all these years. And uh, and it's uh, just great to see so many um, old-timers coming back to campus. And uh, you know, I'm feeling. I'm sorry, Art. <laughs> I know you're only 30, but hey. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the, I'm kind of envious of you because, you know, my if, if we celebrate 50th uh, graduation, for me, I'll be in my high 90s. So, you know, as the Lord willing, I will make that. But, you know, I just, I'm not holding my breath. And um, so, but I'm delighted as well uh, this afternoon to introduce to you uh, Dr. Paul Chamberlain. It's always a pleasure... For me to introduce Dr. Chamberlain to you. Now, the thing is, of course, that you probably know him better than I, and I do. So, I can't even embellish his uh, his credentials. And so, um, but I will just uh, do my best to introduce you to the best of my abilities. Um, the thing is, I, I've I've known Paul for quite a number of years, actually, and I've heard him speak uh, um, I, over a de- two decades ago for the first time, and he kind of inspired me to. Uh, to continue in the in the task of apologetics, uh, defending the faith to those who uh, uh, to those who know, don't know Christ yet, and I think it's marvelous work, and I think it's marve- uh, what what Dr. Chamberlain is doing in British Columbia is is just a marvelous thing, and uh, I'm always happy to see him on on campus, and I'm happy uh, to introduce him to you this afternoon. Uh, you won't be disappointed. It'd be a great lecture, and. Um, Dr. Chamberlain, he, uh, I'll, give him, I'll give the credentials so you know, he is, he is legitimate, all right? So, um, but I'll, he holds a PhD from, uh, from Marquette University. He has authored uh, many books, and they're on the back table there. Um, uh, as Why People Don't Believe is, is one, and his latest book, uh, Why People Stop Believing, and he will talk about that latest book this afternoon as well. So he also published many articles uh, in the fields of apologetics and ethics and philosophy of religion. So Paul teaches in the areas of Christian apologetics and ethics and philosophy of religion and is director of the TWU Institute of Christian Apologetics in British Columbia. So uh, he frequently presents papers at professional conferences as well as seminars and he has debated Many uh, many people uh, in the area, so he does, does, did a lot of work, in and still does a lot of work in the area of apologetics. And so, um, what I want to do is I open with a word of prayer, and I, I call up Dr. Chamberlain uh, to take the rest of the afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you. We are thankful for all the folks who are here. Lord, we are thankful for each and every one of them. And Lord, we thank you for what you are doing at Prairie and what you have been doing at Prairie for just about 100 years, and we are so grateful. Uh, Lord, just uh, uh, the continuing uh, work that is being done and the students that are here uh, that are following in the footsteps of those who have gone before them. And so Lord, just we are grateful for this afternoon. We are grateful for uh, Dr. Chamberlain and his willingness to come out this afternoon and uh, talk a little bit about, um, about the issue of why people uh, stop believing or why people seem to um, walk away from such a, a, a great gospel. So, Lord, just uh, we ask a blessing on, on him. Lord, just uh, give him an anointing of your spirit at this time, Lord, that we, uh, when we hear from, uh, from Dr. Chamberlain, we hear from you. So, Lord, just uh, we are grateful again to be here and we ask that you help us, as well as an audience, uh, to, um, to grasp the things that are being said this afternoon, but also that they become applicable to us when we meet those who don't know you yet. So Lord, just uh, uh, give us a good afternoon together, and in your name we pray. Amen.
1: Okay. Thank you, Bill. Did Bill actually say he was freeing up the rest of the afternoon for me? Did he say, I, I thought I heard something like that. Thank you, Bill. Okay. <laughs> it's really great to be with you folks today. It's a real, real honor, real pleasure, really. Um, and, um, and my wife, Gail, is at the back. Let me just put this down here. Where is Gail? Right at the back there. Okay. She's waving. So that's something you want to look around. You can see. That's right. Can you believe it? She's been with me for 40 years. Um, and um, so I know that's not a big number for some of you in this room here. Uh, but uh, but um, we still have plenty to learn. Don't worry. But we've had 40 great years. Gail's from Winnipeg. I met her after when I graduated here, went to Winnipeg Bible College, which is now called Providence College University, and met Gail there, and we were married in 1979. So we've had our 40th. But uh, I will say, uh, every time I come back to, to Three Hills here, to PBI, it brings back m- very many memories. And you can just imagine. I'm sitting looking at art right here. Art, you planted yourself right smack in front of me, didn't you, right there? Because our art and I go back a long ways. Lots of talks and lots of fun times. With my brothers as well, and with art. But but every time I come back, many many memories. And I even uh, when I come back, I like to walk around and I take walks through the town and through the city. uh, I mean through the downtown area and through the school and up through the Prairie Crescent and the Prairie Heights. And I'm just thinking of that family and that family and that family. And I remember having doing something in that little place in the back alley and that playground over there. It's just incredible because we moved here in 1963. I still remember the day we moved here. We moved from Seattle, Washington up here. My father was going to school down there at Seattle Pacific College. And, and uh, Don Kreitz, and I saw Jim here a moment ago, where's Jim? Right back here? Yeah, right back there. Who, and Who is now looking more and more like Don Kreitz, looked in 1963. Uh, came out to the car and uh, took us to our, to our home, to our new home. And uh, that's when I mean, we lived in a couple different places while we were here. But um, I graduated in 1977. But one of the, the memories I have involves, in fact, they involve some of you folks in this room here today. But see, I think of names like the Ma- how many know names like these names Mastersons? You know that name, the Mastersons. Uh, how about the Callaways, Charters, the Workantines, the Johnsons, the Majacks, Bennets, Penners, Nelsons, Gamashes, You know all those names. Those are all the names I remember really, really well. How about this? We had the pikes and the jacks at the same time when, when we were here. We had the belts and the pulleys, remember that? Some of those? Yeah, they were all at the same time. We had the majors and the minors all at the same time here on, on staff during, during our time here. Uh, I, I remember that, I always got a quick, fair, kind of a kick out of that. Um, but, but a lot of good years growing up and a real rich heritage, and it's always great to come back, and it's good to see some of you folks here, and some of you I know, some of you I don't, but it's, it's, a, uh, uh, it's, it's great. And it's always, all I should say, it's always also great to work with my friend Bill Nyman. Bill and I now have become fairly good friends, we've done a number of things together. Uh, and he said the first time we connected was a couple decades ago, uh, but, but, and I, I don't really remember that, but I do remember working together with him here at the school, and I'm not sure if some of you know that they, the, they're running, and Bill has been very involved, actively involved in this, but the school runs courses, actual courses, in, in, in three of the prisons nearby. One is in Bowden, the, the Bowdoin uh, Institution in Drumheller, and now a new one up in Edmonton, Maximum Security. And so we were out to Bowdoin yesterday, the last time I was here we went up to Bowdoin there again. And, uh, and went to the, me- to, to the uh, medium security and then over there to the, to the uh, m- minimum security after that. And it is just incredible what's going on down there. I mean, if you want an amazing experience, ask Bill if you can tag along sometime. I mean, the whole, this old whole room, start, the, the, uh, the fellows come in down there, the inmates, and they love these guys who come from the school. They just love them. They're giving them not just training, uh, but an introduction to Christianity, to Jesus, to the Bible, and giving them a lot of hope in life, hope that they've never had before, sometimes affirmation they've never had before. I mean, just, it's just incredible. Uh, and, and the love goes both ways. I mean, it is really quite an experience. So I've, I've really had a great time um, being a part of that, just a little part of it. It, it, it does get a few jokes going, too, like my TA, that felt, felt a young man who works with me, he enjoys sending out notes on his Facebook page saying his professor will be going to prison tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, and he asked me how, and asked how, how the captive audience was and how the cell groups were and, and things like that. that that's the, the kind of things I get from my, uh, my students when I let them know this. But it is really a phenomenal thing going there. And, and, find, and what's interesting is I used to go there when I was a kid. My father would go there, and he'd do some speaking there, and we would go play our trumpets, the very same place. Uh, but this is different now. We're running an entire course. This is what's incredible. And the, the, the fellows pay $25 for the course. That's what the book costs. And they give them the textbook, uh, and then they take the course. And if they don't make it, they take it again. And some of them have gone through, they're almost ready to graduate, getting a a degree. And it's just a whole new world for them. So it's really something. I was just going to say, the thing that uh, strikes me about this format here that we're involved in today this kind of a lecture format is that it always does, that it involves a lot of communication, doesn't it? Like right now, I'm doing most of the talking. But when we're done here, we'll all go out and we'll all be communicating with other people. And if we're going to be able to respond to something like the question we have up here, it's going to involve communication. And communication is something we're all involved in. I'm a teacher, so I do it for a living. Some of you are teachers as well, but even if you're not a teacher, you do a lot of communication in your life. And, and, you know, sometimes it's easy and fairly simple, straightforward. Sometimes not so much, not so simple. Uh, I'm not quite sure how how you have ever defined communication, but I've heard the definition of, of communication is just this, the most basic one. Getting an idea from the mind of one person to the mind of another person intact. Is that, how's that? Does that sound all right? It's kind of like a basic definition. If you can get the the definition, if you can get the, the an idea from one uh, mind of one to the mind of another intact, then you have communicated. And you say, well, yeah, that shouldn't be any big deal. But on the other hand, how many times have you tried to do that and then found out only later that what you thought they got or what you thought someone said to you wasn't really what the other person had in mind at all. Did anybody ha- happen to anybody here? Or, or is that just me who that happens to? Um, and so we have things we say. We'll say things like, well, look at." Um, did you get that? And the person will say, yeah. What does that mean? That means, well, they got what they think you said. Okay, so if you really want to make sure, you'll say, well, let me repeat that back to you, what I think you said to me. But, of course, you're not going to be able to do that. Every time anybody says anything to you, you're never going to get anywhere. You won't have very many friends. Of course, I've also heard it said that that, uh, it's it's all in how you do it, too. Uh, Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. Have you heard it said that you can tell people just about anything if you say it well but you can tell people almost nothing if you don't say it well i've heard that and i think there's some truth to that and sometimes of course we are we are our worst enemies i did hear a kind of a, a humorous story of a young man who he had a he had a reputation of, of getting an idea into his mind and immediately blurting it out in other words he wouldn't think much before he spoke he just would speak okay well then he joined up for the, with the military he was in the military, and he was just a new, a new private in the military. And they had a great big gala, a big ball one day, and everybody was invited. Everybody was there standing around, and different speakers were up front talking. And, and, uh, and, and people were there. The brass was there. People were in their uniforms. And at one point near the end of the evening, the general got up, the real big guy. He got up to speak, and he started speaking. And this young guy didn't find it too exciting. He turned to the lady beside him and said, Can you believe this windbag? What a bore! And there was dead silence. And the lady said to him, young man, do you know who I am? He said, well, no I don't, ma'am. And she said, I'm the wife of that man, you just called a windbag and a bore. And he had to really think fast. He turned to the lady and said, lady, do you know who I am? And she said, no I don't. Thank God, he said, as he ran for the door. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's all he had to do, was run for the door. And 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 once in a while, that's all you can do. Is just run for the door. You're in trouble, okay? And you've got yourself in trouble, and there's no way out of it. Hopefully, we won't do those make those kind of mistakes uh, very often. The other thing I was going to say, though, uh, when it comes to uh, this format, this is only one way of doing apologetics. There are many other ways of doing apologetics. Then uh, lectures. There's one-on-one conversations, and there's other things, other things as well. And one one way that God has given me opportunity is to write books. To write a number of books. I remember when I came to Trinity Western. I had never written anything, but for a number of years, I mean, never written any kind of a book, and a number of years I, I had this dream. I thought, I wonder if I could ever write a book. And then I began thinking, well, does the world need more books? There's quite a few books out there already. But I thought, you know what? Maybe, uh, maybe I'd, I'd like to see if I ever got the opportunity. Then I came to Trinity Western, I heard the term publish or perish, and I began to realize, well, here they'd not only like you to, but they're going to give you an opportunity to, to, to publish as well, to, to write. And so I began to work on d- different things, that, uh, some, some different ideas. And this is the first one I came up with. They're for sale to back, and I want to let you know about them. So if there's any of their value to you, you can go back there. Um, and, and pick those up. But this one's called, Can We Be Good Without God? This arose from a debate I was involved in, when, when not, no long, not long after I came to Trinity Western, with an atheist philosopher up at uh, UBC. And they, they called the debate this, Can We Be Good Without God? It was all about the question of whether or not we need God as a foundation for objective morality. And the question before that is, is there such a thing as real objective moral truth? Is morality all a per- personal, uh, a, a private, relative thing? And interestingly enough in the debate, those were the two questions of the debate as well, both the atheist philosopher and I agreed right up front, there is objective moral value. Morality isn't all relative. He wasn't willing to make that, take that position either. So if you were a relativist that day, you had nobody championing your cause. It was really an interesting thing. Uh, and, but the second question was, okay, if that's true, then what foundation must there be for it? Do you need God as a foundation for morality? Of course, the atheist would say no to that. Uh, and I said yes to that. And we had a, quite a good exchange on that. But when I got back home, I realized there's more than two views on that. So this is the book of other uh, asking those same two questions by a number of different viewpoints, uh, and including the Christian, uh, Christian point of view on this. Uh, and it's a dialogue of different characters all the way through. So that was my first crack at writing, and it really opened up a whole new set of doors for me. Then I was in my office one day, minding my own business truly, and I got a call asking if I'd be willing to debate the Member of Parliament, Sven Robinson, on the issue of physician assisted suicide. Today we call it medical assistance in dying, and it's been in the news again recently because we've now lifted the prohibition off in, in Canada, uh, and uh, the, the government has come out with a law about it, and in Quebec they just expanded the, 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 the uh, restrictions now. Um, or they've, they've reduced the restrictions is what they've done in Quebec. Just the one, the one problem. just last week they did that. But this is the book entitled Final Wishes, A Cautionary Tale on on Death, Dignity and Physician Assisted Suicide. It came out of that debate, another one we had I had with spend plus a few more with another person. And this at the same time as I was writing this one, it was when my mother, who many of you knew, uh, had multiple sclerosis. And I watched her lose abilities one by one by one. And Sven Robinson was spending time with a a lady uh, whose name was Sue Rodriguez on Vancouver Island. And she had ALS disease. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I watched people like that and I realized these are some of the people who sometimes choose assisted suicide. And uh, so that, this book came out of that, took a sabbatical after that and wrote that. This one here, talking about good and bad without getting ugly. I'm not sure if you could come up with titles like this, uh, the publishers come up with this stuff. In fact, in, in fact with well, what I sent in, the title I sent in, I think they found it kind of boring. But I learned the difference between a publisher and a terrorist, by the way, when I wrote this book. Do you know the difference between a publisher and a terrorist? You can, you can actually negotiate with a terrorist. Okay, that's, that's the difference between the two. Okay? Uh, because when they want a title for your book, just, just, just admit it, that's going to be the title. And this is the title. It's all about engaging others on different moral questions. And that's, what, that's the, 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 the point behind this book. We often say we should stay away from certain topics. Religion, politics, ethical issues, ones that are kind of a little dicey and controversial. But I've always thought, there's got to be ways we can discuss these with people. And that's what this book's all about. And it deals with issues like, like, say, the challenge, well, you have no right to impose your moral values on the rest of us. You're religious. The rest of us are not religious. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? So we have a chapter called Thou Shalt Not Impose and other chapters related to that as well. This one, Why People Don't Believe, deals with what I consider to be one of the, one of the more pressing and more recent apologetic challenges to Christians that we face in the last 10 to 15 years. And then as a religion, including Christianity, is dangerous. Is a force for evil in the world. It causes people to blow themselves up and blow up, blow up buildings and fly planes into buildings and blow up abortion clinics and stuff like that because they believe God told them to do it. Uh, and the, the, the new atheist names like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and you know some of these names. Uh, they've advanced this, uh, this uh, uh, position very strongly. So this is a response to that whole idea, the new atheists, why people don't believe. The last one is why people stop believing. It's the one we're talking about here today. And, and, and let me just say a few more things about that as we go here. I'll put these down here for now. Those are at the back, by the way, and you can, you, can, you can purchase those, by the way, with cash or with checks or with a credit card, whatever you'd like, if, if, they're, of, if they're of value to you or, you, to, you or, or to somebody else. But the, the final book, Why People Stop Believing, the, the question that really got me when I began working on this book is this. I bet it's a question that some of you have thought about as well. What's going on out there today in the last 5 to 10, maybe 15 years? Why is it that people who once embraced Christian faith, and I bet some of you know people like this, Uh, who went to church, who read their Bibles and believed them, in some cases prayed, they studied theology, in some cases promoted the faith to others, in some cases they were leaders. How is it that people like these come to the point where they're willing to abandon the whole thing and to walk away from the faith and and from the church and even from God himself? Because some people just walk away from the church, but they say they're still religious or still Christian. But plenty are walking away from God himself. And now claiming the whole thing was a big mistake and the rest of us would be wise to follow them out. How does that happen? And why is there some kind of a wave of that going on? Because what, what struck me is that when people like this do this, they often become some of Christianity's most ardent critics, most passionate critics. And I went back to think about some of the people I've been involved with in some of the debates I've had the privilege of being, being a part of. Almost all of them have had some kind of religious or Christian past and they become very passionate in their opposition to it. In fact, one, one uh, debate I was involved in a number of years back with a friend of mine, Michael Horner, we went to an atheist convention up in Kamloops, B.C. There's an atheist Different atheist groups are attempting to make Kamloops, B.C. the atheist capital of Canada. And they have a very strong atheist uh, uh, group and people in, in town, and they engage people through the newspapers and through other ways. Well, there are some Christians in Canloup's as well, and they began engaging these people, and they, and they ev- eventually set up this debate with a couple of us to come up there at one of their conventions. So here was a convention about three hundred atheists coming from around the world, really, but most in North America, but a few from other prophe- uh, I mean other countries, and they were there. And they were going to kick off the evening, I mean, the conference, kick off the evening on a Friday evening with, a, we with this debate with a couple of Christians. And it was going to be Michael Horner and myself. And when friend, different people heard about this, I got asked this question numerous times before this debate began. The question was atheists coming together, like to celebrate what? What do atheists celebrate? They celebrate nothingness, or what do they celebrate? And people would get kind of a bit of a kick out of this. So I just said, you know what, I'll find out when I get out. I'm going to try to get an answer to that question. And I got that from a lot of different kinds of people, Christians and not. One of my son's teachers in school said, ask your dad, what, what, like, what, why, would, why would atheists get together like that? Well anyway, I got there and it took me minutes to find out. Virtually every atheist he talked to was an ex-something or other. Like an ex-Southern Baptist, ex-Mormon, ex-JW, ex-Catholic. They were almost all X something, and you know what? They were there to celebrate their freedom from the shackles that these religious teachings had placed upon them. That was a a major theme throughout that entire conference. In fact, they called it, they took a a song from John Lennon, Imagine No Religion, and that was the theme of the conference. Imagine that if we could be totally free of religion, and and you know all you have to do is look at the names of the groups established by people like this. Once they leave, they have the groups like the Free Thought Society, that's one name. You can look all these up in Google. All these, the Reason Project is another one. the the the, the, the uh, Good Thinking Society, the Center for Inquiry, Rationalist International, and stuff like this. They're all they're all called things like this. And the point is that they're to, they're, they're telling us is if you want to be free to think. And to carry out honest inquiry, you know what you got to do? You got to leave your religion. You got to leave your Christianity, whatever religion you're in. Because if you're willing to take that step, then you're willing to move into a world where no one's telling you what you must believe. You can read widely. You can consider new ideas. You can think for yourself. You can follow evidence and argument wherever they lead. So here they are, celebrating the newfound freedom from religion. And this is a huge theme. They write books. They set up websites. You can find these all over the internet now. Uh, fill them up with testimonies of others who, who have who have walked away from the faith, and they've and, and telling us how they were duped before, but now now they're no longer duped, and they present arguments which are built around their own knowledge of Christianity and the Bible and theology. And the point is, having been Christians before, some of them know quite a bit about Christian faith, uh, some of them know a lot. Let me just say, when you meet a person like this, you this this is the type of thing um, that that we have to be really prepared for because it really is. Um, uh, it it really is a different kind of critic. Let me tell you about one young man who encountered a critic like this. Uh, The the young man I'm talking about is in the United States, but he was raised in a very fine Christian home, and then he got to be a little older. He went to a Bible college. He studied. Uh, Then he went on to university, became quite a successful professional in his field, became active in his church, worship team, leadership team. But he had a colleague at work who was not a Christian, and he was very outspoken in his unbelief. And he also knew this colleague had, a, had a, some kind of a Christian past. He didn't know that much about it. And he wanted to talk with him and share his faith with him. Finally, the opportunity came because these two colleagues were sent away on a weekend trip to work on a project together. So he said, here's my chance. He asked the church to pray for him. He was going to go meet with this, uh, work with this, this young, you know, the young guy and talk to him. Well, he started in. And, and to put it very mildly, things did not go according to plan because this colleague was no passive recipient of what my friend had to say. He had grown up a Christian, sure enough. And in his late teens, after he began studying the Bible a lot in his own way, however he was studying it, began reading up on on church history, he began encountering all kinds of problems. Problems in the biblical text, in the history of Christianity. Things he could not figure out, he could not solve. So he began making a big list of all these problems. And eventually throughout throughout the entire thing, throughout his faith, he rejected it all and was now all too happy to actively recruit others, present these objections to others, to try to talk as many out of the faith as he could. And that's what he tried to do all weekend with my friend. He just said, I can't, believe, I can't figure out why you're still believing this stuff. I got out of it, you should get out of it too. And for every, every point my friend made, this young guy had a response. And when my friend was done with everything he had to say, the colleague started him with his own list of objections, one after the other, and all weekend bombarded my friend with these objections. Uh, one after the other. And for most of them, my friend didn't really have any reply. He hadn't really thought about in, in these terms before. Uh, and when, you, when, when, you, when the whole weekend was over, my wife and I got a call from his wife saying, Look, it, your friend's going through a, through a faith crisis here. Uh, this really knocked him back, set him back, uh, and told us the whole story. And I guess my question for us is, this fellow who I'll call Tom, what did he do here? Have you, uh, if you think about this for a moment, did he do something wrong? Like, he tried to do something good, didn't he? Did he make a mistake along the way? Well, if he did, it's really not that easy to to put your finger on what the mistake was. You see, I guess what I'd suggest is that he entered this new reality, that we're we're all entering, really, in one way, whether whether we've experienced it yet or not. But he entered a cold turkey, full bore. The reality in which, whether or not you're sharing your, your faith with others, there's a growing group of people out there who know all about our faith. They once believed it themselves but they've walked away, and they become some of the most ardent and most informed critics. And here, here, here's the point, and I'm trying to get this figured out here. Yeah, here, they know your faith, they believe in themselves, and, and, they're, and they're more than happy uh, to, to uh, tell, tell you uh, all, all about it, to tell you why you, you ought to leave as well. And I've often told my students, you know what this does? This presents us another reason to study apologetics. Not just to share the faith with others, but to keep it ourselves. To, to 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 help to strengthen our own foundation. Now, maybe there's a caveat in order here, and that is this: the caveat is that this is not technically a brand new issue. Uh, in fact, in fact, if you go back to the New Testament, you can see First Timothy chapter two it talks about. Remember these names: Hymeneus, Philetus. Remember these names. It says, "Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place." I guess all we're saying here today is that in the 21st century, there seems to be a whole wave of people like this walking away. And their writings and lectures have caught the imagination of many people in our, in our culture. So, so listen, let me just ask right here, what makes these kinds of critics different? I just want to mention three things here. If I, I guess if I was in a regular class with students, I would just say, you tell me what you think, and we'd have a little discussion on it. But let me tell you th- with the three ways I found these kinds of critics are, are different from other critics we, we might encounter. The first is, the credibility that they uh, experience in our culture. Think about this. Uh, have you noticed that we all tend to give a higher level of credence to people who are former members of the groups that they're now speaking out against? Have you noticed that? No matter what the groups are, uh, if it's, think, think of the credibility even most of us confer upon it, maybe an ex-Muslim when we meet one, or, a, or an ex-Jehovah's Witness, or an ex-Buddhist, or an ex-just about anything really. Because, see, uh, f- f- the question is, who would know it better than they? I mean, the rest of us study it from the outside, but these folks were actually in the groups that they are now speaking out about. Uh, and and, and so we, grant, we grant them a lot of credibility, and especially if they happen to be leaders in that group. Well, here we have all these leaders walking away from Christian faith, kind of a wave of them today. There's a, there's a new one showing up all the time, if you're following this on the Internet at all. And and they're given a lot of credibility in our culture, way more so than others. And the, the, the media treats them with a lot more respect as well. That's one way. The second is the insider's knowledge that these critics bring to their challenges. You see, if you think about this kind of a critic, think of a critic who had this knowledge of the Bible. They, maybe they've been to, to, to a Bible college, been to a seminary, they've studied. Now they have the knowledge of the Bible and theology, church history, way more so than the average Christian they are even going to talk to in many cases. Um, and in some cases, like I say, they were the experts and leaders in our community. That means that they can speak with, with a very high level of focus on certain issues. They can find what they might call our weak spots, and they can, they can push on those. And they know the responses we're gonna say because they used to use the same responses themselves. So they know these things. So this, this kind of critic has, a, has a, a, an inside knowledge. The third the, a way in which critics like this are different is the way they formulate their objections against Christianity. Now we could go into this in a lot more detail. But they're formulating them in, in, in a way that moves beyond the way that we will normally hear certain objections. You could talk about examples here, um, but the way they present them will be different than the way many of us will have heard these kinds of objections before. And it's really important that we think about that um, and and uh, and understand that, that often when they present an objection, it will already have the answer, the anticipated an answer, already included. They'll already know that. Well, look at let, let, let me ask this question: Why do people stop believing? Why do they do it? Here is a question that really drew me to this issue when I began thinking about it. Because the question I began asking in my mind is, what kind of Christian leader walks away from the faith? Like, I know, I've known, I've had the privilege of knowing many wonderful Christian leaders. When they walk away from the faith, it's fairly traumatic. Okay? Uh, perhaps you've wondered the same thing I've wondered. How could anyone walk away from the Christian faith? Did they really know the God of the Bible? If they knew the God of the Bible, how could they turn away? I mean, these are the questions that come to mind, and while it may seem just absolutely unimaginable, it's not actually a new phenomenon as we saw, it, because a, the, the New Testament even tells us that it, there was things like that happening back then. But here's what I found, that when I, uh, when I, when I attempt to, um, to find neat and tidy categories for why Christian leaders leave, I've actually found it quite difficult. I found the stories are quite varied and there's, a, there's a, a different motivating factors of, of various numbers of them. And, and here, the thing that has amazed me the most is for the, for the most part, there are people very much like us. The, the, the ones I've known, they're very much like us. And I found that a little bit scary to tell you the truth. See if you don't think the same thing when you hear a few examples. Here's one young man. Uh, he attended Moody Bible Institute. Then he went on to Wheaton. And then he went on to Princeton and began to encounter some difficulties in the text of the New Testament. Discrepancies, contradictions, textual variants, you know, on, on, the, on the Greek and Hebrew texts upon which our Bibles are based. He began to find these differences in there, and he struggled, and he wrestled, and, he could, and for whatever reason, he could not find answers to these, these issues he had. And eventually, his faith began to one by one, bit by bit, come down. He said it was like a house of cars until so eventually the whole thing collapsed. Well, today he's gone on in his studies, and he's a very highly rated scholar. In fact, he's the chair of the Department of Religious Studies at a University of North Carolina, but a very prominent critic of Christianity, one of the most world, most well-known prominence of the New Testament and of Christianity itself. Here's another one. This, the second one is a person I studied with, and I did my own PhD studies. He was taking courses as well. He had been a seminary graduate before that. In fact, he went to the same seminary I did before that. Uh, he had been a Christian preacher, a church board member, a very bright guy. He wrote articles in Christian magazines. Then questions began to loom really large in his mind after all those years. And he encountered some, a number of really serious personal difficulties in his life as well. And as he writes, he said he began to be no longer convinced by the same kinds of arguments that he had found so con- convincing and so important to him before. And eventually he wrote a book on how and why he became an atheist. And today he's devoted his life to, to, to debunking Christianity, as he, as he puts it. He's got a team of bloggers that have worked with him on the Internet, and he's written different books. And the stuff he writes is actually very credible. It's, he, he puts hard arguments out there, arguments put in, in, in a way that I'd never thought of. But listen to his own testimony. He says, as a young man, he was not raised in a Christian home, this fellow, but as a young man, he, he, someone gave him a Bible. And he began to read the Bible, And and he said, it all seemed so real to him. And eventually he said, my life was radically changed. That's what he even says that now about, about his life back then. It all seemed so real. And he began looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus, even going out hitchhiking with the goal of witnessing to anyone who would pick him up. He was doing that. It just, it just it strikes me that maybe he would put most Christians to shame in terms of his passion and service. Eventually, he went on to study, uh, as, as I said before. But today, he sings an entirely different tune. And as I said, devoting his life to debunking Christianity. Uh, he sent a note to me through, a, through another friend saying, I, I guess Paul has heard that I've gone over to the dark side now. Uh, that, that, that's how he puts it. Here's another one. Another uh, man who I actually met because he was one of the ones that was involved in with the, the debate we talked about earlier. Raised as a th- Southern Baptist in Texas. He was training for ministry and, 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 and as a Southern Baptist and, and, and a whole bunch of things happened in his thinking and he began to reject the entire Christian faith. Now he leads the atheist community in Austin, Texas. As a very articulate spokesperson, he's prominent at public gatherings all over North America uh, for, for gatherings of atheists. And actually, to tell you the truth, having met this guy, he's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Uh, after the whole debate was over, he, I, my wife was coming up to me, uh, and I said, Hey, Matt, let me just introduce you to my wife. And he saw Gail coming, he says, Oh, I'd stick with her for 30-some for years. And, I said, and he came and gives her a big hug, and I said, Hey, buddy, she's taken. Uh, and... Uh, and he, uh, But, but that, that's the kind of guy he was. He invited us down to come see him in Texas. Have some real steaks, he said. Not the kind of steaks that uh, most people have. We'll come to get some real ones with us. And you've got a guest room. Stay there if you like. I mean, it was unbelievable. He's quite a guy. But he's one of the fellows totally re- who was training, for, preparing for ministry, and now leads the atheist group in, in Austin, Texas. Another one. Uh, I'll, mention, I'll just mention two more. This, this fellow was an author and a former Pentecostal minister for 25 years in the U.S., He's now an atheist, and he's rising in prominence as a, as a, as a, because he's the person who's the founder of one of America's first secular churches. It's called, it's called Community Mission Chapel of Lake Charles, Louisiana. They get together because they still like the interaction and the company with each other, the fellowship. They sing songs, Beatles songs, etc. They have testimonials. This person gets up and talks to the group, things like that. That's what they do. And it's, it's a, there's a bit of a movement of, of secular churches that have been starting across North America. Just one more I'll mention here. And this is of a university professor, but he was raised as a pastor's kid. From an early age, he wanted to be a theologian. So he read everything. Church, church fathers to systematic theology, got a Ph.D. in the history of Christianity, and eventually landed a teaching position in an evangelical seminary. Then, he says, he began to find himself no longer believing the faith he had grown up with. And he made the decision to leave his faculty position. Uh, and and uh, in, in, a, in an article not that long ago, he's encouraging other Christian professors: be open about your and be honest about your identity, uh, because some of you don't believe the things you're teaching either. And he says, as, as time goes on, time went on. He says, I could no longer fake it. Other people maybe can carry on faking it, but I, I could never, can never carry on faking it. And I said, and I looked at it and said, well, these are the stories. How do you? categorize the reasons people leave. Well, having read a bunch of the stories, let, let, let me just mention three uh, that I found that, that, that maybe are reasons with it that, that could be considered uh, common reasons that, that that is present among people who leave. The first one is what we'll call disillusionment with Christian colleagues, with the church, and with God. Now, have you ever noticed that if you were disillusioned with Christians around you and with the church around you, if you are... There's not a real big step between that and disillusionment with God himself. There really isn't. Uh, and that's what I find happening here. One pastor, a Christian writer who left the faith, tells of a personal setback and a failure in his life as a Christian leader, in his own life, he, and, and he admits fully he made some big mistakes here. Personal setback, a personal failure... The whole thing quickly though became ugly, blew up into a public scandal in his area involving the police, involving some serious allegations which went way beyond the things he said he did. Well, anyway, as he tells it, he realized he made a very bad turn and he wanted to, make, he wanted to come clean and make things, make things right uh, and, and with his friends and his colleagues and his board. He wanted to explain his side of the story. And what he was hoping for is that people he, that, he was, that he talked to, his longtime Christian friends, would at least believe him. But instead, he said he found himself being treated like damaged goods. And is a really key comment from him. He said, even as some of his longtime friends were having trouble believing the things he had to say. One time, he said he was having a conversation with somebody. And in the middle of the conversation, he could kind of tell, this person doesn't really seem like they're believing what I'm saying. And he said to the fellow, he says, well, you believe me, don't you? And the other person said, you know what? I'm just really not sure who to believe. And he said, that statement, that comment really hurt. And he said, he hung in there for a while. But later on, when he finally walked away, that was one thing he pointed to. It was one thing that kind of was, was a key factor in him moving him down to a downhill slide, which ended up with him leaving the church and God altogether. But that was one key thing, disillusionment, because of the things he did, and, 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 uh, but disillusionment in the end. That's number one. Let me give you another one here, and that is intellectual difficulties with Christianity. Believe it or not, I'm never quite sure what to make of this, because when people walk away, they have all these lists of intellectual difficulties they have, and some of them are actually fairly hard. Uh, and there are many, and they're varied. They have to do with God, the existence of God, the nature of God, the God of the Old Testament. Have to do with the New Testament. Can we trust the New Testament? What about textual variants? What about contradictions, differences among the Gospels? And, and do we really know who wrote those Gospels? And can we trust them because they were too close to Jesus? And it goes on and on and on, under, undermining the New Testament. Uh, and, and questions about the supernatural. How can we believe in the supernatural anymore in the 21st century, knowing what we do about how the world works? Of course, if you can't believe in the supernatural, it's hard to believe in Christianity, isn't it? Because the, the Christianity is based around its miracles, particularly the big one, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, and there's, there's intellectual difficulties like this, and I would just say here that, that we, I think we're unwise to ignore these. I think we need to take these seriously, and it means we need to get r- real prepared. And I want to talk about those a little bit later on as, as to how we can do that but people will point to intellectual difficulties as to why they left. And that's what really motivated me to write this this book called Why People Stop Believing. My attempt in that book was to say, what are the reasons you are saying you left? Let's see if those reasons are as compelling as you say they are. And that's where where I was going in that book. A third one here is just this. What about this? People leave because of what we'll call unrealized expectations, or, or sometimes we'll call unrealistic expectations, concerning God and Christianity. Let me tell you what I mean here. One former pastor was asked, just a little bit ago, and this is on the internet, you can find this, why he stopped, why he stopped believing in God. You know what his answer was? He said, I finally ran out of excuses for God. I just couldn't, I, I've never heard anybody say that before. I thought, what does he mean? Well, when you read on, he said this. In his own theological training, it had stressed that God would protect Christians, that God would answer their prayers, God would provide them with wisdom and with strength. God would heal them from diseases. God would give them an abundance of everything they need. He said, I looked at that passage in Matthew 6, where Jesus said, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. If God takes care of them so beautifully, well, then what are you worried about? Oh, you have little faith. Doesn't Don't you think God cares for you much more than the birds and the flowers? He said, I looked at all that. He said, and that's what I loved about Christianity. Because he said, I was raised in a very much more liturgical setting. I didn't find my, my faith very meaningful growing up. And then I was introduced to this way of thinking about Christianity. But he says, over time, what happened? You see, this pastor said, I began to look around. And I began to notice that more often than not, these promises failed to materialize. That's how he put it. He said, I found bad things happening to me in my community about as frequently as to my non-Christian friends. About the same. Uh, and he says, "So I began collecting answers to prayers precisely in his words, because I found them to be so rare. I would pray and I wouldn't get answers, pray, me, but suddenly I'd get one, so I'd collect that. And he says, "What do you do when that starts happening and you're the pastor, because he was the pastor. What do, you, what do you do?" He says, "Well, you start by making excuses for God." He called out the fine point of his theology. You get some of them from the Bible. And then, you, and then you just have to work and create others of your own. But he said, you could only go on for so long. Eventually, he says, I ran out of excuses. My belief in God came to an end. Now, I look at that as a really unfortunate thing, an unfortunate case of misguided expectations. And I guess all I would say to us is, these are some of the things we need to take seriously as we talk about how we can, how we can respond and how, how, and how we can uh, uh, work with people who, 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 have, uh, who have made these decisions. Now, you know what? What we're going to do here, we're going to turn to the next issue, which is the last one, the big one I want to get to, and that is, how should we respond? But could we take about a five-minute intermission here? Let's do that. You can stretch, do whatever you like here for four or five minutes, uh, and if if, uh, we need to get called back together, we'll have Bill do that. But how about we do that? Just a very brief intermission, and then we'll get back to the last one. How, then, can we respond? What are some ideas here? Okay, Thanks. Okay, if we, if we can uh, just find our way back to our seats, let's, let's look at this last question here. Uh, how should we respond to this? So it'll just give us about a minute to take our seats, but that, that, that's what I want to get into, this last question. And I'll bet some of you have some pretty good ideas on this as well, how, how would we? How should we respond to, to all the stuff that we see happening around us here? Because it's, it's serious enough that I don't like to just go to the first part, I would like to go to the second part as well and ask what could we do, if there's anything we can do here. Well, let me put a few things up on the screen here. I'll tell you some ideas that have come to me over, over the last number of years. Uh, and, and then some of you may have some other ideas as well that you might want to add in any comments or discussion at the end as well. But the first one is just this. I think we, we, we must make sure that we never... Uh, well, we need to take very seriously what Peter said. You know the verse in, uh, I'm thinking about, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's quite a strong statement. But when you think about that, he's calling us to be in a constant state of preparedness and not just to explain what it means to be a Christian, but why we are Christians. To to give a reason for the hope that we have. And I I, I guess in in my mind, this was the initial motivation for my book. I remember talking with a a pastor friend and I told him the, the same story I mentioned to you here today, just in my kitchen one day. Um, about uh, this, but, but my friend who had had this happen to him with his, with his colleague at work and had the whole thing happen. And, my, and the pastor friend just listened to it, didn't say too much. But then six months later, he went back and we were visiting again. And he said to me, you know, that story that you told way back then, he had thought about that and thought and thought about it. He said, that just gives me the willies. He says, because I'm a pastor uh, and I just wonder how m- many of my people would have been able to fare any better than your friend. Uh, he said, been to Bible college, a, a, well-tra- a pretty well-trained guy, you would think. And yet, when he was hit with really well-informed objections by a well-informed critic, uh, he, w- he was really un- unready. And I would just say, we, we just need to make sure that we take this as seriously as we can, um, that, that, uh, um, that, that, we, that, that Peter's call to always be prepared. I'm sure most of us in this room would agree with that, but I, I think it's a basic one. Let's remember this as well. Um, let's see here. And I'm getting something kind of funny coming up here. Let me just go a little further here. This is inter- interesting what I'm getting up here. Okay. You know what? I've got something different here. I'm going to leave this. I knew that was going to happen, Andrew. So l- let's just, Andrew, you can just shut that off if you want, because we don't, we don't need to, to, wor- to work with it. As we had, I had the, one, the first one on there, but I didn't have the other, so we, we don't really need to, to use the, uh, the PowerPoint. I'll just, I'll just go through and tell you what these are. The second one is this. It's what i mentioned already, just to recognize that the critics of Christianity we face are not all the same. We've already talked about that earlier. But the thing that came to my mind as I began working on this issue was that if you are a person who has maybe been a pastor, or maybe a Bible college or seminary graduate, uh, or you've been working in the ministry for a long time, you are going to be a different kind of critic. And then the, other, the ones that we, we, the, the, that we would tend to meet. Uh, and, and we've already talked about some of those differences, so I don't need to repeat them, but we need to really realize there are different kinds of people out there who are critics of the faith, and that's one. And, and, and this is a different kind. Let me go to a third one here, a third, a third response that I, I think is, re, is, re, uh, is really important for us, and that is this. Let us surprise. When we meet a person like this, I think we should surprise them with our grace and with our love when, when we talk to them. And I say surprise because realistically, I think we might as well admit it, we as Christians don't always have the best record here. And I guess the question I, I, have, and I ask in my mind is, now that folks like this are on the outside of the Christian community looking in, they used to be in the Christian community, now they're on the outside, how much friendliness and how much grace do they receive from Christians that they encounter? This is a really good question for me to think about. I mentioned this in one talk I gave and then uh, some, some time back. And and, uh, uh, when we got out, at the the very end we had time for Q&A and a gentleman stood up and he said, you know, I walked away from the Christian faith totally a few years back. I was gone for a few years. And he said, and immediately I found out that all the people I used to hang out with and talk to, they really were not there for me at all. I was pretty much left out on my own. They didn't really, they felt awkward around me. They didn't know what to say. Uh, They didn't really, and, and, and so basically I felt like I lost my whole set of friends. He says, and then there was one person who gave me a call and said, we need to get together. And they got together, this Christian gentleman, got together and he began asking him questions. He said, he didn't argue with me, he just asked me lots of questions. And we got together again, and we got together again, and again, and again. And that was the way, that was my road back. Because uh, he said, no, I can't enter back into the Christian community. Well, I just wonder if we, if we, how, how we're doing on that. And the reason I say is because I have a student back, in, uh, back at Trinity Western, he's a, he's a master's degree student, he's in his 30s, a little older, m- mature, mature guy. And he's a guy who has a real heart for interacting with people who are not Christians. He'll he'll join. He joined at one point uh, uh, a a club of atheists. and Really, I guess it was an atheist club in, in the Abbotsford area. He joined it for about two years. In fact, he joined it and we met with them weekly until the club went defunct. The club finally ended. And he told me one day, he was kind of a little bit down in the mouth. In fact, I happened to see him walking down the sidewalk. It was kind of a fluke. I happened to be there coming out of a restaurant, and he was walking down the sidewalk. And I said, Chris, where, where are you going? He says, I'm just I'm coming from the Atheist Club. He says, the club just ended. Every, he says, every time I join a club, a couple of years later, they end. You know, uh, and, uh, and, and this, the, the, But he had been a part of this for a couple of years, and, and he would interact with them. He'd hear from them. He'd get to know everybody for two years, just coming to the club. Uh, and he did the same thing with a group of Mormon missionaries in our, in our area. He would meet with them regularly and, and get to know people. And they'd really get into issues, and they'd plan the next issue, and he'd do his research, and they'd do theirs, and they'd come together again and again and again. So they get into this in a really big way. And one day he came to me and he said this. He said, you know, I sometimes wonder what we're doing when the Mormon missionaries come to our door. He says, because having met with these Mormon missionaries and gotten to know them pretty well... He says, they tell me again and again that their experience with evangelical Christians is one of being treated with unfriendliness and even, even to the level of hostility day after day after day when they knock on doors. And he says, to the point that by the time they're nearing the end of their two-year stint, most of them have come to view evangelicals as simply hostile people. That's after the two years. And Chris just said, you know, if Christians would just, even if they don't want to talk to them or don't have anything to say, if they just love those Mormon missionaries and treat them well, treat them nicely, it would make it a lot easier for people like me to have productive conversations with them later on. And I said, that's a really good point. That, that's, that's all we really need to do. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had to, to sit down and take time and talk with those Mormon missionaries, but I did sometime back, and I re- realized that as the more I got talking, the more I found they had quite a negative attitude to the various Christian groups in the Abbotsford area based on their experience. In fact, one, they pointed to one group and said, they hate us. That's what, they, that's what the group told me, the couple I was talking to told me. Uh, And I thought, you know what, all we really need to do is love our neighbors as ourselves, which was Jesus said, and do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and we'd have this one taken care of. Interestingly enough, I'm not sure if some of you heard the news, but a couple of young, Mormon missionaries were involved in a serious accident in Kamloops last weekend. Not sure if anybody heard that. And one of them actually died uh, since the accident. Uh, the, The fellow is from Colorado, the young man. And so Chris, my friend, heard, heard about that. He contacted the people he knew, the missionaries he knew, Mormons, just to let them know that he was thinking about them and wished them well. And they got, they got back and said that, that really meant a lot to them. Uh, and I was thinking, that's all the kind of thing we need to do so we can prepare. So when, when someone does want to sit down and have conversations, then the, then the people are ready. And I would just say, for people like this who've walked away, it's always going to be a question in my mind how are they being treated by the rest of us now that they're on the outside looking in? I hope they're, re- they're, they're receiving a sense of grace and friendliness from the rest of us. Let me go for a fourth one here, and that is this. This is going to sound pretty basic, but there's a reason I say it. We need to pray for people like this and realize they're not the enemy. All right, Pray for people like this, they're not the, only, uh, the enemy. And I raise it only because at times they may, be, they may appear to be the enemy. When someone says, my job now in life is to debunk Christianity... That sounds like the enemy, doesn't it? But it's not. The only enemy we have here is the one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. First Peter chapter 5, that's the enemy. These other folks, they're our former colleagues. They could use our prayers and our love. And, and uh, that, so that's, that's my, my, my fourth point by way of response. Let me give you a fifth one. And that is, let us prepare for meaningful dialogue. Now, this is a really big one. And this may mean doing some reading, some interacting, some thinking, some talking with other people, but how do we do that? Well Let me move to number six right away because number six is, you know what we need to, um, we, we need to figure out what kinds of questions we can ask, like like what kind of how 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 do we do this? How do we dialogue with people like this when this happens? Well, there's a key question I would suggest we ask, and it is this: If we sit down, ever sit down with a person who walked away from the faith, why not ask this question: What exactly were you rejecting? What exactly did you walk away from? And just let them, let them talk. Maybe it was something about God. Maybe it was something about Jesus. Maybe it was something about the Bible. But maybe more than likely it was something about something that happened to them in their life, in their Christian community. Who knows what it might be. We just didn't let, need to let them talk. But I like that very focused question. What exactly were you rejecting? That's the question I think is, at least is one good one, one we can ask. Let me go to another response, and that is this. Let's recognize something here that maybe the church that person walked away from, okay. Now re- recognize these people all walked away from some, walked away from God, but walked away from a church or some kind of Christian tradition as well. Maybe that church made a couple of mistakes, some, some, maybe some big ones. Now, we, of course, we all make some mistakes, don't we? But maybe that church did actually discourage questioning. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Because so often when people walk away, one of the things that rises to the fore is the notion that now I'm free. Now I'm free to question. Now I'm free to think. Well, weren't you free before as a Christian to, to question? Well, maybe they, maybe in their, their Christian tradition, the, the, the group made a mistake and didn't, and didn't uh, d- uh, encourage questions. And maybe they did, made this mistake as well. Maybe they equated the primary uh, essential Christian teachings. You know the ones I'm talking about? There is a God. And he re- revealed himself in the person of Jesus and then the, the, the Bible is the Word of God, and Jesus is coming again, and Jesus rose from the dead, and salvation by grace through faith. These are the essentials. These are the things that Christians believe anywhere you find them. But sometimes, it, it could be that in the, in the groups that these folks left, maybe they were equating the primary teachings with some of the secondary non-essential ones, the ones where there's legitimate disagreement by people with a high view of the Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Those end times questions, for, for instance. Um, like, uh, is, is, uh, will Jesus' return be pre-tribulation? Will it be post-tribulation? How about this? Will it be mid-tribulation? Have you heard about that one? Okay, probably have. Um, will, it, will it be pre-millennial or amillennial? Or what about predestination, election, free will, uh, eternal security, the age of the earth, the role of women in leadership? These are sometimes very contentious questions uh, in the Christian community, but we need to recognize those ones I just mentioned are not the primary essential teachings of Christianity. These are secondary, non-essential. And they're the ones where people with a high view of the Bible, who study the Bible very carefully, will often have differences of opinion. And, and we need, need, need to make sure we keep those straight. And it could well be that in some of the groups that these folks left, they were equating primary and secondary, essential te- uh, secondary non-essential teachings. Let me just make sure. I'm not going to lose this. I just about lost it right there realize that okay how's that now you see we can argue against that and we can come to tell people look at you know what you may have walked away because you thought you know know, christianity prohibited free rational inquiry we can have arguments about that and all that but what i'm suggesting here is that maybe we need to just listen to the experiences of people like that and say and found out and say that maybe in your group maybe that's what they did maybe they did discourage questioning maybe they did inappropriately elevate certain viewpoints on secondary issues to a very high level and, and then permit, do not permit questioning on any of these things. And that leads me to another response which follows right out of it. And I got this one from J.I. Packer. And I'm not sure if you've, uh, most of you will know who J.I. Packer is. But one thing he has told his students over the years is this. The, J., uh, the, 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 the well-known theologian, highly respected man. He said well, well, he said, well, I believe in an infallible text. Okay? And I bet most of us in this room do as well. An infallible text. I do not believe in an infallible human interpretation of the text. Okay, that's what Jay Packer put it. I do believe in an infallible text, but I do not believe in an infallible human interpretation of the text. In other words, when humans go to human beings like us all go to work on the biblical text, we need to recognize we are not the infallible ones. The text is infallible, but we interpret it, we're doing the best we can, but, but, but we're not necessarily infallible. So we have these important distinctions that we need to make, and, and, and I guess the only question is, how then does this work out for, for in, in our churches? How do, how do we do all this in our churches? Well, I think it comes down to one really simple point, and that is just this. Let's make our churches and our Christian gatherings places where questions and exploring are welcome. Let's make our Christian churches and our gatherings places where, where questions and exploring are welcome. How, how do we do that? Where do we start? Well, well how about this? Maybe, there, maybe there's some pastors in here or some of us who do, do some teaching and preaching. Are we willing to encourage people to whom we preach to examine and to question our own teachings? Are we willing to do that? See, that's an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? Because you remember the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17? They were called more noble because what did they do? After the apostle, yeah, after the apostle Paul was done speaking to them, it says they went away and they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were, were so, were true. And then they were willing to question. And so they were more knowable for doing it. And then it said, and remember the result? Many others came to faith in that group. I think we have little to fear by encouraging people to question. And I think we and I think we could we we do ourselves a big service and the, the Christian community a big service by encouraging people to question, even the things that we teach. Now, can I push this one step further and just ask you this question? Is there a sense in which Christianity invites questioning and exploring on all of its teachings? Not just those secondary ones, but on all of its ones, even the most important, essential, historic teachings. What do you think about that? Is there a sense in which Christianity invites questioning and exploring on all those? Well, here's why I ask it, is because when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Remember that passage, the resurrection passage in in there? When you get down to verses 17, 18, 19, the Apostle Paul says this. Look at if Jesus has not been raised, remember what follows from that? He really goes on with some pretty negative things, some pretty nasty things. Number one, our faith is in vain. And then he says, not just that, but we have no hope in the face of death. All those people who have died, we've gone to their funerals and we've said, it's okay because we're going to see our brother. We're going to see our sister again sometime later. Paul says, that's all off if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, he ends up by saying, if, he, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's a very strong statement, okay? Uh, and, and why? Well, because we've been duped. We have been so totally duped. Wow, we've been duped if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We've been duped into believing something that's one of the biggest hoaxes that ever been foist, foisted on the human race. It's why C.S. Lewis is really interesting here. He makes a statement that if, if uh, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus... He says, it's either true, and then one of the most important teachings you'll ever give to somebody, or it's false, and it's the biggest hoax that's ever been foisted on the human race. He says, either way, it's very, very important. He says, what it cannot be is moderately important, okay? If it's false, he says, in one sense, you can kind of forget about it, if it's true, well, then then you can't forget about it. It's the most important thing, but it can never be moderately important. But what I'm thinking here is, if that's what the Apostle Paul was willing to say in 1 Corinthians 15, well, as one of our pastors out in the Vancouver area said just a little bit ago, he said, it's as if Christianity is willing to stake its entire message on one historical moment, and actually one supernatural historical moment, the moment of God raising Jesus from the dead, and then invites the world, come question it. If you're a scientist, question it. Go check it out. If you're, if you're if you're a historian, go check that out. If you're a philosopher, go check that out because everything rests on that. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the whole thing is a sham. But if he did rise from the dead, then everything else follows from that. Uh, and, and it seems to me that in that sense, we, we can, we can uh, invite people around us. If you're not sure, explore. Explore. What do you think? See if Jesus rose from the dead or not. See what you think when you look at the data. Let me go on to another response here, though, that, I, that I've, uh, I think we should be thinking a little bit about, and that is this. Let's guard against overpromising on God's behalf. You see what I'm getting at there? Remember that one pastor I talked about who had these unrealistic expectations? I guess we'll call them unrealistic. At least they were unfulfilled anyway, expectations, and he was preaching those to his people, and, he, and the, this, these are what really made uh, the, the gospel important for him. Well, you see, what happened is he said he began to preach these, these these things, and he began to find that they weren't really coming to pass. He began to make excuses, and the whole thing led him to become disingenuous. And I thought, we need to be very careful how we do this. Uh, well, William Lane Craig, uh, some of you probably know who he is, a, w- a well-known Christian philosopher. He talks about one other pastor, totally different story here. And then tell me what you think about this, okay? Uh, uh, Bill Craig talked about a pastor, who got up in front of his people one Sunday morning, and they had a member in their church who was dying of cancer. And they prayed for healing for that member. Okay, The next Sunday, they came back and the pastor announced that the member had died. And then he proclaimed to the people, See, we prayed for healing, and God did it. This is one of the best healings one could imagine. Now, William Lancraig says, You know what? That's disingenuous. Because you know that's not what you prayed for. I guess I'd say, we can put that kind of interpretation on it if we actually discuss it for a while and say, in one sense, God did do that. We can discuss it and interpret it that way, but I don't think we should begin by acting as though God answered our prayer in the way we meant it. Because you know what that does? That then turns anything into a positive answer to our prayer. And it just becomes disingenuous, especially to people on the outside. And they're asking, well, then what would ever count as a non-answer to our prayer? And the whole thing just becomes meaningless. And I guess in this pastor's case, the one I mentioned first, who walked away, he said, after a while, he looked around and he said, who am I fooling here? And he just felt he couldn't, he couldn't carry on anymore. And that's why I say, I think we should be very careful about overpromising promising on God's behalf. Because, see, here's what we know. I think all of us in this room know this, that godly people sometimes experience pain and grief. How about this? Children sometimes die even when their parents or pastors pray for healing from them, for, for them. That happens, doesn't it? Uh, do you, uh, some of you have heard the statement by Samuel Rutherford, the old preacher. He said this, It is God's prerogative to pluck His roses and gather in His lilies at midsummer or in the beginning of the first summer month. What is that to you or to me? The goods are His own. He has the right to do that because he's a the creator, creator of all life. I guess my encouragement to all of us is this, just to make sure that, that our people here, that God does not always conform his actions to our wishes. And that's a good thing too, by the way. He is the, he is the omniscient, sovereign God and we're not. And so when it comes to suffering and pain that our people are going through, isn't it a better message to preach? That God may choose to heal and to rescue us from pain, but either way, we have a Savior who understands he has suffered as well, more, more acutely than any of us will. And he promises to walk with us through, right to the end, any suffering we go through, and if necessary, meet us on the other side. That is, that is the, actually the message of Christianity. As I worked with Rabbi Zacharias for a while, and he would be hit with these kind of things, for, and he would always start right off by saying, Christianity has never promised a life free of suffering. That never has been a promise that Christianity has ever given. And, we would, and we're, we're, we're making a mistake if we actually treat it that way. Uh, we would, we, what we should say is that there is a, we have a Savior who has suffered. He understands our suffering. He's willing to walk with us through it. And if necessary, meet us on the other side. And I find that to be a much more accurate answer and it does not lead uh, to, to uh, the negative, expector, unrealistic expectations. And that, by the way, is a much more powerful answer than any atheist ever has to give, by the way. When you, when you ask an atheist about the future, the answer is, well, we die and we rot. And that is it. And, uh, we deteriorate. That is all there is to it. And then we should get used to it. That, that's the answer. Let, let, let me go to another response here. We're coming near to the end here. The response is this. We need to prepare our people to respond to our Christians and their brothers and sisters when they go through their low times. Because you know what? As teachers and leaders and pastors, I think we have a real opportunity here because we all know that at some point in our lives, most of us are going to go through deep waters. Is that not correct? Most of us will. Most people will. Uh, and sometimes they're of our own making, We're capable of really blowing it sometimes, I know that. But at other times, life just happens. Bad things happen to good people. That's why this book's written by that title, by the way. It does happen. But right now, I'm thinking of those times when someone in our circle creates their own bad situation. Maybe it's a moral failure. Maybe it's a bad decision. Maybe it's a series of those. Okay? And sometimes these can cascade into something very tragic. Start a real downhill slide. Cause people to question things they've always believed and taken for granted. Well, here's what I'd say. Here's why I'd say we have a real opportunity to prepare our people for these times and to address them. And the the only suggestions I would give you are these. The first one is this. I think we should get used to, really get comfortable with teaching a principle that I see Jesus putting into practice in John chapter 8. You know the story of the woman caught in adultery? It really is a phenomenal story in that passage. And the principle I'm talking about here is Jesus, no condemnation, but no approval, Principle at the same time. You see hear that no condemnation, no approval. That principle, uh, and I suspect that if Jesus were here today teaching it, it would be just as surprising in the 21st century as it was when He taught it then. You remember the story of John eight. I probably don't need to go through the whole story, but Jesus made it very clear that He was holding these two things in balance. First of all, He, he did not approve of the action of the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember, He said, "Go, leave your life of sin." Remember that's in there. So He made that real clear. But secondly, at the same time, he did not condemn her as a person. He made it quite clear. He asked, did anybody condemn you? No one condemn you? And she said, no one. And, she said, and, he, and guess what he said? Neither do I condemn you. That's an amazing statement, especially when, when it's clear. There was nothing in question about what she had done. Her guilt was not in question. Her actions were not in question. Okay. Uh, and, and here Jesus was able to hold these two things in, in balance: no approval, no condemnation, at the same time. And, and as, as in fact, it looks to me like Jesus even added one thing. He went a step further and restored the dignity of this poor woman who had probably taken quite a trashing uh, from the people who brought her. I, 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 I guess I just find that in our, uh, uh, our, our, my experience is that this this duo, these two principles, condemn no condemnation, no approval. Mo- many of us find it difficult to, to hold those two together. We emphasize one. Or we emphasize the other, but let's remember that Jesus held both, and it's and I think it's a really key thing that we can do to prepare our people to respond to people when they hit the skids and hit the low times, uh, and and that that may have that may have helped the one the one person I talked about earlier. One other way, though, we can help people prepare for the low times is just this: let's frame one really important takeaway question. And the, and, the, and the question I would have was framed, and this one, interestingly, didn't, didn't even come from me. This came from a discussion I had with that same young man, Chris, talking about earlier. He and I were sitting around talking together about this exact issue one day. And he said, why wouldn't we just ask somebody, if somebody has been through a tough experience and they're thinking of walking away from the faith, maybe they've already walked away. Why not this question? The question is this, if this is what moved you to leave the faith... this thing that happened to you, whether something you did or something somebody else did, if this is what moved you to leave the faith, exactly which tenet or which teaching of Christianity did your experience disprove? Follow me there? If this is what's moving you to leave the faith, exactly which tenet, which teaching of Christianity did your experience disprove? In other words, as my friend, my student put it this way, if the Christians around you were jerks, okay, Or if you, or they treated you in a second-rate manner, or if you acted in a second-rate, third-rate manner. suppose one of those happened. What does that prove about the truth or the falsity of Christian teaching, of Christian truth claims? Does it follow from this that Jesus is no longer the Savior? That Jesus never rose from the dead? That God no longer exists? Let's at least focus people back on the truth of those big questions. Because that's really what we, uh, I I would really love to see us go there. Back to the foundational question of the truth of Christianity. And there's just one more I want to leave with us here in closing, and that is this. Let us not lose hope in the midst of this whole thing. And, And the reason I say that is because sometimes it can be a little discouraging. You see somebody who you thought would never walk away, and yet they walk away. And, and that can, and, and the media sometimes give people like this quite a bit of attention. If you, if you, if you've noticed that, the Christian media too, uh, and and then but this and the and the more public secular media as well. But but the point I want want to make make here is that let us not lose hope when thinking of people who have turned from faith. And the reason, the place I got this from from a former professor of mine, John Woodbridge. Some of you may know that name, but he's been teaching uh, church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, now called Trinity International University, down in Chicago for a long time. And is a really a wonderful guy. He taught me church history when I took when I studied down there quite a while ago. And he wrote an article just last year in Christianity Today called Why Christian Theology Needs Former Atheists. How about that? Why Christian Theology Needs Former Atheists. And, he's, and John Woodbridge is a former atheist himself. I just found that out when reading the article. I didn't even know that before. And, and, he, and in this article, he calls upon the rest of us in the face of all these defections. He says to, to do this. Let's resist the widespread secular myth that atheism, that atheism is, the fi- is the inevitable final intellectual stop for any serious educated person. In other words, there's no reason to think this is where the person is going to stop, just because they happen to to be an atheist now. And he says, it's just not true. And and in the article, John Woodbridge Woodbridge puts out a whole list of Christian scholars who once were atheists. People like C.S. Lewis. Did you know he was an atheist? Some of you probably knew that. He'd been an atheist for the first half of his life. John Warwick Montgomery, a pretty well-known apologist in church history a church historian, was, a, was an atheist. Kenneth Conser, the founder of Christianity Today, worked with Billy Graham to found that magazine. He taught me theology as well, former atheist. Carl F.H. Henry, another one. Alistair McGrath, scientist and theologian today, former atheist, and he has others in the list as well. And he makes, John Woodbridge makes the explicit point that these thinkers and many others, they move from disbelief to faith, not in spite of their intellectual study, but actually as a result of it. They studied, and it moved them there. And Woodbridge says this, and we need people like this. You know why? Because their work can provide valuable insights, apologetical insights, he says, into some of the difficult questions they were forced to navigate in coming to faith. They navigated all these things. How did they do it? They can provide great insights for the rest of us. Uh, and there's more things we could say on this. But I'm going to leave it at this, uh, as, as far as the, the main responses I have. That's quite a few. But I just want to know if anybody will take just a very few minutes here, because our time is just about gone here. Anybody have any comments or any questions or any other responses you'd like us to, like to share that would be of help to the group? Because I'd love to hear if anybody has anything. How about we take a couple more minutes, uh, Bill? That sound good? Okay. Yeah, any, anybody else with one? Yes, yeah, so at the very back. Steve, just speak right up if you would, my, my friend. Mhm. Um, and I the, I mm-hmm. I, I the question is were they, right? Uh, they were half right? Okay. That doesn't that doesn't help that much Steve when you say it that way. Okay. No, they were half right because mm-hmm. was popular
0: with all kinds of people, mm-hmm. very strong conservatives and strong liberals. Mhm. Yeah. All accounts of the life of Jesus. Yeah. Very different stories. And I I've, I've read the uh ballots the Bible many years later. Yeah. I thought this guy at one point had an insertion in there where a guy came up with six denials of Peter instead of three mm-hmm. to make the text
1: verified. I thought, you've got to be kidding. And I and what the analogy was, when I sit in the courtroom and two witnesses get up and give a word perfect witness to the same event. Yeah. Yeah. that Hmm. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. See, there's a book written by Craig Evans. Some of you may know the name Craig Evans. It's called Fabricating Jesus. He talks exactly about this this very point Steve's raising here. But, but certain people who have raised with, with what seems to be a, a view of Scripture that's very high and very irreverent, but actually gets us into trouble right off the bat when we're looking for word-for-word for word agreement in order to, to, to say that the, the Scripture is true. And, of course, when you read to the Gospels, the four Gospels, you don't get that. You've got Matthew saying it one way, and Mark saying another even down to the very small things, like this is my beloved Son, you are my beloved Son. Okay, that's not word-for-word word agreement, is it? But the idea is exactly the same. The gist of the, the meaning is exactly the same. But if you're looking for word-for-word for word agreement, if that's, that's, that's what your standard is that you've set for that. Then you're going to have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to somehow make that fit. And that's what Steve was talking about. Harold Linzell, who wrote the book Battle for the Bible, who was handling the scriptures, something like that. And he finally came up and he said, we have to say that Peter denied Jesus six times. Because we find all these differences. There must have been six different denials. Even though it says right there, you'll deny me three times. It says right there three uh, and, and so you know you got an issue that way. And I, and I, you know what? This actually, this issue here has actually moved people away from the faith. We need to be very, I think, very clear and very careful in how we teach what our, what our expectations of the, of the Scripture should be. And the very best uh, scholars I read on it always say: you get four documents together, they're reporting on the same thing. What you're looking for is agreement on all on the big picture, the big items, all, big agreement all the way through, which is exactly what you have in the Gospels. But differences in the way the stories are told, which, again, is exactly what you have in the Gospels. And I think when you look at it that way, you have a really strong record and a great thing, the type of thing historians are looking for. And Steve's exactly right. If you take two or three uh, uh, witnesses to to the same event, and they give a word-for-word, identical testimony, you know what the rest of us were going to say and the judge and the jury? They made it up together. They got their story straight. In a really interesting story, I'm going to take a little bit longer here, but there's a a fellow's name is is, uh, uh, Jim Wallace, J. Warner Wallace. He does quite a bit of apologetics now, but he was a homicide detective in Los Angeles for a long time. I've gotten to know him on a couple different occasions, a really great guy. And he talks about this very principle. And he says, and you can see how it works in police detective work as well, he said he was called one day to the scene of a crime to interrogate a number of people who had been accused of a crime and they were on the scene. So he had to drive an hour to get there. He drove there and he w- walked up and he said to the officers, okay, where are my witnesses here? He said, they're in, that, they're, in, they're in that police cruiser right over there. He says, you got all of them in the same car? Yeah. He says, well, then why bother, why bother interrogating them? They got their story straight now. They're all going to say the same thing and it's all going to match perfectly. Uh, he says, never, and he just really gave it to those guys, you never, ever put them in the same car. Uh, and, and it seems really basic and really simple, but see, it's the same principle here. Uh, so when we read in the Gospels, any historian is, is is delighted to see that the Gospels report the same story with the same facts and the same meaning, but differently, because you've got different witnesses. Uh, and that's exactly what you have in the Gospels. And it's a beautiful thing. But if you're looking for word-for-word agreement, well, you're looking for the wrong thing, number one, and that's going to you, put you into all these mental gymnastics. But unfortunately, sometimes in our churches... We have, out of a a real reverence for the Bible, we have almost taught that that's what you should have. If God said it, well, what did he say? Did he say, "This, this is my son? Or did he say, you are my son? He must have said one or the other, which is it? And, 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 the, and the point is, it's all being translated anyway, and it's being written 30 or 40 years later by, God, uh, who, by what, uh, the, the different uh, disciples, the apostles, who are not even attempting to give us a word-for-word statement. They're telling us exactly what the meaning of it is, and that's exactly what you get. So we need to be, I think, really careful how we put this and, and not set our young people up for all kinds of struggles later on when they begin to study the Scriptures in this way. Good comments, Steve. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, anybody else? Our, our time is about gone here. Yeah. If I've been the pastor and the person wasn't healed, yeah. I would have thought of two things. Either it wasn't God's will or somebody that was there praying was a little bit weak in their faith that there would be a healing. And that was the, the weak link. Yeah, could be. Ultimately, it seems to me we need to let God be God and do what he chooses to do. He's going to take us all home sometime. So that's going to happen sometime. One of these days it's going to happen. So that's, that's good. Okay, you know what? Let's leave it at this because our time's gone. I'm, I'm happy to chat further if anybody wants a personal basis, but thank you very much, thank Professor DeBell. Thank you. you back.
0: Thank you, Dr. Chamberlain. It was great. Um, so you have time to Uh, Maybe go to the back table and look at look at some books. Yet, if you want to purchase some books, but I want to thank you for coming out here. I hope you had an enjoyable and enriching afternoon, and I hope your your stay here, the rest of the stay here at Prairie, uh, will be great as well. Enjoy your your banquet tonight. Uh, Thank you for coming out.